Okay, everyone. So I had a great time talking with Daniel about his book, The Serpent Shadow and Spirits Unwrapped. And, you know, we dived into a whole bunch of other topics about Blair Witch and story structure and our new collaboration with Daniel Nighttime Logic. But um, I also am excited to have him read a short story, How to Stay Afloat When Drowning, that appears in Paradolia, which was edited by James Everington and Dan Howarth from Black Shuck Books. And this is a first for Inkaista. Along with the excerpt, this is the first time we've been able to share a short story reading. And Daniel, thank you very much for reading this for us. Oh, wow. It's a... Uh... It's an absolute pleasure, an absolute pleasure. So yeah, I just yeah, I just want to say thank you again um, to you and Shane, and thank you to the um, the editors of Paradolia, um, James Everington and Dan uh, Howarth, who edited this cool anthology out of the UK from Black Shuck Books. Um, yeah, Rich and I were joking off mic about like yeah, how how are we're, we're too American, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna be flubbing loving this word yeah but uh that's a really cool word i mean it, i believe it means i'm not looking at the definition but i believe it means it's a psychological phenomenon to see things or, th or see the human mind to process shapes or to see things that aren't necessarily there to see patterns that aren't necessarily there so what is it what uh, that's why this book is um, really intriguing to me to be a part of just to see how how these um like for two reasons. One, like you said, Rich, this this anthology was a gateway um, for me to read some of these British authors that I had only had minimal or no exposure to. Um, yeah, really great uh, standout author is Carly Holmes in the book, and um, and just such a creative idea of how to. It's such an unusual phenomenon, like you know, seeing the rabbit in the moon or the face on Mars, or you know, you seeing Jesus in in in, in the cornfield or in uh, your tortilla you know like these that's like par examples of paradolia just to see how everyone um approach the story so yeah i'll read it's a longer short story it's called how to stay afloat when drowning i figured slipping away to the bar would be a good way to escape the table's cringe inducing conversation but i can still see uncle roy and allison laughing it up with the client and our hired boat captain among the litter of cracked lobster shells and half-eaten fish bladders. The bartender sees me coming and is ready with another rum and coke. The night wind blows a gust of clean ocean air into the dock's aroma of fried food, cigarette smoke, and miasma of tables full of Long Islanders, New Yorkers, and high-season out-of-towners for whom the pace and style of the Hamptons just won't cut it. Enough fishing talk for you, buddy, the bartender says. He knocks on the wooden bar top and collects the dollar bills pinned under the tea light burning in a thick shot glass. I prefer my meals without talk of buckets of blood and guts, I say. Thank you very much. From over my shoulder, a laugh joins the murmur of lapping waves audible in the second before the next classic rock song kicks in on the tinny speakers. The bartender and I both turn to look at the woman on the stool next to me. 
She's in a long sundress and a green army surplus jacket despite June's warmth. There's no makeup on her young face, but she doesn't come across as young. The way her lithe frame is comfortably parked on the barstool speaks of years. I think there's something unusual about her forehead, but it's just the glow from the light strings hanging above the bar, flashing on and off her face. What's so funny? I ask. She's staring past me at the water. I, I don't think she's going to answer. Everyone knows the real way to chum for sharks is to cut yourself from nape to navel and let your gut spill out, she says. I expect her to laugh again, or at least smile. She doesn't. The bartender winks at me and steps over to serve an old Italian man who has come up to the bar. We're uh, talking metaphorically here, right? I say, spill as in spill into life, your life, my life, not into the water, right? Sure. Yeah, sure, she says, blankly. I feel like I've disappointed her, and she's searching my face for a hint of the answer she wanted me to say. I know I should be uncomfortable with the way her gaze remains on me, but I'm flush with excitement. Come on, you know what I mean, she says. I don't know what she means, but I smile like I do. I'm not really one for chumming, I say. But you're bleeding all over the place. There's a splash from baitfish jumping below. You better look out. There may be sharks about, I half sing. It's her turn to smile at me with no idea of what I'm talking about. Sorry, my singing's terrible, I know, I say. The real lyric is, is dogs, not sharks, though. N never mind. I get it, she says. Sharks smell blood, like some people smell weakness. At the table, the client and Uncle Roy are pretending they're holding rifles and aiming into the air. I try to fight away the memory that comes. I'm surrounded by a mob that's pulling a six-foot thresher out of surfer-crowded waves, and I'm squeezing Nina's hand. Fear isn't strength, it's just thrashing, I mutter. Strength isn't truth. The real kind of truth vulnerability brings, she says. Not too many people feel that way. I would even comprehend that. You do, she says. But you're here to hunt? I'm not here to hunt. There's no way I'm going out with Allison and them in the morning. There's no way to tell her without spiraling into everything I don't want to talk about. I almost say I'm just here to get through the day. But even that intentionally casual answer leads to unwanted paths. I I'm only here for my family, I say. She laughs again. What? Tell me something true, she says. That is true. That's my sister sitting over there with my Uncle Roy. She runs the surf apparel distributorship our parents founded. The, the guy next to her is the purchaser for a big group of stores. So, yeah, yeah, the point of this weekend is to land his business. The other guy's the boat captain my sister hired to take us out tomorrow. He told us his full name, but he insists we just call him Captain Mike. He's a bit too serious about the captain part of it, too, if you ask me. It's boring stuff. Then tell me something else. 
I don't know, like what? Do you surf? Never been on a board. Yeah, my family's business is surfing, go figure. She swirls the ice in her glass, slides a few cubes through her lips, then covers her mouth as she shifts her lower jaw. I think I hear a little pop. I lived out here one summer, I say. It feels like a lifetime ago. It was. What was it like? Nothing like now. The town's grown up so much since... No, no, what was it like for you? Me? I was young, though I didn't feel young at the time. I felt alone, far from home. Then I fell in with someone. We were sort of engaged, and what can I say? We ran away together. That's what it was like. Almost sounds romantic, she says. I wish it was. It should have been. It wasn't. Are there really any good places left to run to, she asks. We found a place in the middle of nowhere, Costa Rica. They have bats down there that we wanted to see, the, the kind that grab fish right from the water. We had to take buses and a little plane and then a boat. The boat had to go, well, the whole thing was a mess. Did, did you know whirlpools were a thing? I never knew they were real. And a thing to worry about when you navigate into the mouth of a river from the ocean. Th that's how I know. For a while there, we thought our boat was going down. I'm not the praying type, but I swore... If we got out of it alive, I'd never leave sight of land again. Wow, careful, she says. Don't worry, I'm not going out tomorrow. No way. I meant careful. Keep being honest and vulnerable like that. And I don't know what I'll attract. I guess that too, she says. I was going to say careful. You might get used to it. We stare past the diners and drinkers at the crescent moon and the red dot beneath it. I wonder if she's going to speak. I like that she isn't about small talk, that she dives right into the heart of things. Can I get you another drink, I say? Better yet. I'm dying to get out of here. You up for a change of scenery? It's late. Yeah, the day starts early around here. How about just one more? It's not that, she says. I'm here for my family, too. I want to ask her to tell me something true, but it feels like the moment to ask that has passed. If I stay, I'm going to have to go back to that table and talk about fishing in brand name wetsuits, I say. So I'm going to walk these drinks off. If you feel like company and you want to walk and talk with me, just say the word. I've already stayed too long. I have to find my sister. She stands. I awkwardly wish her good night and mumble something about how I understand family comes first, instead of asking her name and if I could see her tomorrow. She weaves through the tables and disappears into the door leading to the inside part of the restaurant and the parking lot and road beyond. The bartender returns and shakes his hand like he's just touched an oven. Now that's a keeper if I've ever seen one, he says. For a second there, I thought you were going to reel her in. I pay my tab and ask him where else is open around here this time of night. You could count the places on one hand, he says, then tells me. I return to the table. Captain Mike and Uncle Roy are lighting cigars. Uncle Roy implores me to join them. I politely decline, remain standing, and announce that I'm hitting the hay. 
Allison whispers in my ear as I peck her cheek and wish her good night. You look pale. You okay? I nod and smile to let her know that I am. Good night, I say to the table. See you all in the morning. I don't mind lying to them, though I'm kicking myself for not having the presence of mind to ask the woman for her name. I hope it's not too late to catch up. Headlights from the road briefly light up the neighboring dock as I make my way through the tables. One of the busboys is standing on the shore having a smoke. Somewhere in the dark, a night bird calls. The dock where I spent so much time with Nina isn't far from here. Salt air smells the same ten years and isn't forgotten easily. I try to conjure the feel of her hand against mine. I'm not sure which memories are of real sensations and which are just fabrications dulled by the years. When wrestling, the seagrass brings the sense of the vast open stretches of sand back to me. The night bird's honking cry echoes over the water. The ocean breeze has tussled Nina's black bob into a wild tangle, framing her sun-touched face. I can smell her last cigarette, though she swears she's quit. She leans in and rescues our melting ice cream cone with a well-timed lick, followed by a big sloppy smile that transforms her. She ceases to be the depressed soul who thinks and talks so much about art school but never paints. I no longer see the streetwise girl running away from school, from the city, from what she calls conformity and everything. But instead, she is an ethereal, sensual, carefree being, here watching the waves and surfers with me. Me, the would-be surfer who's never stepped on a board, with the afternoon sun warming my shoulders through my t-shirt and her sticky hand around mine, I think... Maybe this is all life is, pairing up and running away from whatever it is you are running from, together, like this. The end of the pier is crowded with people fishing, holding hands, and wave-watching like us. The break isn't so hot, but there are still surfers out there hoping the left will develop. Someone in the water is yelling. Nina and I push over to the railing to look with everyone else. A young man has hooked a thresher shark on a line. The panicked fish spins and spasms as it is hoisted from the waves. A half dozen people have their hands on the line helping bring it up. The shark swings and manages to smash itself into one of the concrete support pylons. The people pull and pull and bring it up all the way to the rail. A woman leans over and gets her arms around it. Someone holds her waist and pulls her in. The crowd grabs hold of the shark, lifts it over the rail, and drops it onto the pier. It flops and twists, its open mouth revealing a maw of dangerous teeth and the steel hook that snared it protruding from its lower jaw. No one wants to go near it now. A widening circle of space forms around it as everyone backs up. The woman who first grabbed it emerges, brandishing a baseball bat. Her blow connects with the shark's side, right under its dorsal fin. It flips, landing on the steel hook, driving it deeper. The woman slams the suffocating thing again. Then the mob is all over it. This isn't fishing. This isn't protecting anyone. Our ice cream splats on a puddle of blood and salt water. The shark is beaten 
into an unrecognizable shape. I realize Nina has never seen tears in my eyes. In the chaos of kicks and bat swings and skin and scales, it dawns on me that we're drowning. We're drowning here. Let's go, Nina says. I'm with you. No, no, I mean it. I mean, let's really get out of here. Anywhere you want, I say. Anywhere at all. The silver setting reminds me of a wave curling around the small blue opal and two tiny diamond dots. The plan is to ask her to marry me at the lodge at night after we see our first fishing bat. Maybe I'll draw a bat while we're down here, Nina says, all the bouncing on the dreadful road making her voice vibrate funny. The awful bus ride doesn't dampen her spirit, and she kisses me as we lug our bag from the bus stop to the shore. The roaring ocean and clean air are so welcome. We're warned by the two, boatmen, the two boatmen not to go in while we're waiting for all the passengers. After ten minutes or so, they decide there are no other passengers. There's water in the bottom of the wooden boat. The older man pushes off the beach, jumps in. The boatman on the motor guns it as we crash through the wave line. The boat catches air and lands with a heavy thunk. The older boatman leisurely bails water with half of a plastic jug. We motor to the estuary at the mouth of the river, which is the only way to the lodge. Swells lift and drop us. I don't like the look of the waves we're going to have to pass through, nor the way the boatmen are bickering in Spanish. It's rough, the younger boatman says to me. We may have to go back and try again tomorrow. But it's almost dark, I say. Where are we going to stay? Don't sleep on the beach, he says. The sandflies are not very nice. The men speak to each other in Spanish. We're going to try, I ask. The boatman guns the engine. I grasp Nina's hand. The water in the bottom has soaked our packs. The older boatman is bailing in earnest now. A big swell lifts and drops us. We spin and spin and wind up with our port side facing land. The boatmen yell at each other as the boat is dragged along, parallel to shore. Waves hit from all sides. The water fills up faster than the old boatman can bail. Can you swim? The boatman asks. What's happening? I ask. Kiss your wife and pray. The older boatman stops bailing and throws a small wooden crate overboard. Then a full jug of something, motor fuel maybe, then a bag of oranges he has fished out of the calf deep water. He grabs my pack and I stop him. We watch the jettison stuff spin away in the current. Large, dark shapes are moving beneath the surface. I spot a lone dorsal fin heading towards the crate. Nina is perfectly calm, though she is squeezing my hand as hard as can be. Behind her, a big wave is coming up on us sideways. Her look of resignation inspires a burst of sadness and anger. The boatman guns the engine. The wave slams us. We're soaked, but somehow we don't go under and emerge from the blinding spray shooting towards the shore. The sweet woman who runs the lodge escorts us to our cabin, which is on a secluded rise nestled into tall palms at the edge of the rainforest. Through the big window, taking up most of the far wall, we can see the water that almost dragged us down. 
There is an assortment of pots and pans, a hairdryer, a small electric radio, towels, a flashlight, and a can of bug spray lined up on the counter next to the sink in the kitchen area. A thick extension cord runs through the front window bringing power. The shower runs on rainwater. We thank her and flop our bedraggled selves onto the big bed. When the woman leaves, Nina cries softly. We fall asleep in our soggy clothes, the distant sound of waves, no comfort. We wake in the night. The waves have quieted, the tide has receded. A coral reef and fish are visible in the clear water, their tropical colors illuminated by the full moon. The balcony outside the window is bigger than my apartment. A metal tub, a coal grill, and bucket are the only things on it. We peel ourselves out of our clothes, heat up buckets of water, and fill the metal tub. From our bath, we watch the fish in the water below and spot bats flying by, grabbing insects. I rub Nina's shoulders and gently whisper, We made it. This inspires a fresh round of sobs. What is it? What's wrong? I ask. People don't get it. Get what? They don't understand that thing. The only thing that's real is how we treat each other. Nothing we do is going to be remembered. Nothing, I say, comforts her. After an hour, I decide to trek down to the cliff to the main area to see if I can find ice cream or anything that might cheer her up. I return to the cabin and notice the big window is open and the power cord is running through to the balcony. Nina's stopped sobbing. I don't like the low-pitched buzz coming from outside. Nina? She's motionless in the tub, her head's tilted back, staring at the sky with that same awful resignation that came over her in the boat. I'm confused at why the cord is out here until I see the submerged hairdryer. A blue arc jumps from Nina's bruised skin, joining the pink and orange bolts that crackle over the water every second or two. The awful sound is coming from the radio floating by her feet. The reek of ozone and burnt hair hits me, and I understand what she has done was no accident. I told myself a lot of nevers that night. Never leaving sight of land is the one I've kept. I must not have truly meant the rest. I spot the woman from the bar on the bend of the dark road up ahead. I walk faster and try to catch up. The shape that I thought was the woman is not a person at all, but a big owl perched on a roadkill on the shoulder where the road turns onto Main Street, just past where a bunch of cars are parked. The owl sees me, opens its wings, and silently lifts into the air. A man ambles out from behind the nearest car and crosses the road. There's something wrong about his face. He stumbles into the brush and beach scrub on the other side. I realize there's a path to the beach there, and I follow him. A dozen surfboards are half buried in the sand, forming a circle around a small bonfire. Dozens of people, surfers, are drinking and smoking and milling about in the fire glow. The man stumbles towards them. In his path, I see the woman from the dock, standing just outside the ring of light. I run over. Holy shit, you scared the hell out of me, the guy says. 
The woman is nowhere to be seen. I spin around looking for her on the beach and in the crowd of surfers. Sorry, uh, hey, did you see which way the woman who was standing right there went? I didn't see anybody. His face is a patchwork of heels over burns and scars. I point to the sand. There's an indentation that's much too big for footprints. It looks like a person or two had been laying there. She was right there. He shrugs and fishes a bright pack of cigarettes out of his pocket. He takes one out, lights it up, and pulls deeply. I introduce myself and ask if I can bum one. He hands me the pack and motions for me to take. Words on the wrapper say, Busa Baka Baki. The cigarettes are clothes wrapped in thin white paper. In what faraway place were these purchased? What a life he must have. They all must have. I scan the beach looking for her again. I spot another of those big indentations in the sand a few yards away. A tall surfer breaks away from the pack by the fire and comes over. Every inch of his lean swimmer's build is suntanned. His hair is bleached blonde and he's wearing board shorts and a t-shirt like the rest of the young people. But the lines on his face show he is older than me. Everything all right? He asks the scarred guy. Yeah, sort of. This guy scared me, but everything's cool. This is a private party, the surface says to me. Do we know you? No, and sorry, I, I didn't mean to crash or, or startle anyone. I'm just here looking for my friend. You see her? No, but maybe I can have a look around to be sure. A big splash at the shore carries through the darkness before he answers. Hey, Danny, I think someone's out there, someone by the fire calls. The surfer and the scarred guy go to look. I palm the pack of smokes and slide them into my back pocket. I used to lift smokes the same way for Nina, even though I didn't want her to smoke. I knew she would and we couldn't afford it. There's no one there, just the sets of waves coming in. People are leaving the firelit circle to check it out anyway. There's no thrill being here for me. I've come so far from the time I so desperately wanted to be a part of something like this. I return to the road and trek back to my hotel room. Despite the hour, I cannot sleep. I wish I had told the woman from the bar that I didn't come to hunt. I came for Allison. I did think there'd be something here for me, that I'd be full of memories of Nina. The ache is so dull and far away. It is almost not real. I take a clove from the pack and smoke it. When it burns down, I light another one. Nina thought stealing was wrong, so I never told her where the smokes came from. I sit and smoke and imagine what it would be like to connect a swing of a bat into the sides of each of the surfers out on the beach. I know it's terrible, but I don't care. Nina thought killing the shark was wrong. She'd probably think it was wrong to beat the mob who did it in. I never had a chance to tell her how much I longed to do that. I'll take a break. How are you doing out there? All right. Yeah, I'm doing good. All right. Okay. Uh, it's like the halfway point. So sorry, Shane, I made some editing work for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he'll be okay with it. <laughs> All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quiet for three and then I'll go in. Okay. I used to believe there would always be good places left to run to. 
Now I'm not so sure. Determining if there are any good places left to come back to seems more important. Our warehouse was in Hopog, less than two hours away when the traffic's right. It was more like home than our house ever was. There's a hint of sawdust and vanilla pipe smoke in the air, which means dad's in his workroom shaping a board. Mom is gathering all signs of our domestic activity in the conference room. The four of us are made into our de facto dining space and finding hiding places to obscure them from visiting eyes. Go get your father before you leave for class, Mom says. The buyer should be here any second. Tell him it's the professor. He'll know who. The whine of the motor on Dad's wonky power sander grows louder as I walk through the rows and rows of stock, shelved wetsuits and shoeboxes towards the corner of our warehouse Dad has claimed for his personal workspace. I push through the hanging plastic barrier into Dad's world. Remnants of past projects, experiments, and abandoned works in progress fill the small, square space, a test section of planed hardwood, a rack with two shaped but unvarnished boards, dozens of fins. Dad's at the machine in the center of the room, grinding a piece of wood that will one day be a surfboard. His long, dirty blonde hair is tied back. Oversized safety goggles mask his clear blue eyes. He clenches his stubble-covered jaw in concentration. The fins fascinate me the most. Dad could easily make standard designs, easy sells to buyers, but he makes all kinds of crazy boards with all sorts of fin positions. What kind is this one going to be? I say to announce my presence. Single fin or double? One style is all the rage right now, but I can't remember which. Neither. When it's done, I'll know. Mom says someone's here for you. A buyer? This late? Mom says you'll know who? This inspires Dad to stop the machine. He flips his goggles off. It's almost done. Want to try it with me? Now? No better time. I don't know. I'm heading to class. I'll walk with you up front. I know he's not pushing. He's trying to instill in me the notion to take on the world on my own terms and at my own time. I grew up with him telling me you don't know if you can surf until you try, and I love him all the more for it. He shuts the lights and the power, and together we walk through the rows of inventory towards the front. He's muttering to himself as we walk. When you are taken by the undertow, if you are lucky, you realize you are but a river in this dark sea, I discern him saying. What's that? Uh, something for this meeting. What's it mean? It's something surfers say. Come on, tell me. If I could, I would. Mom has transformed the conference room back into the showcase for our business. I grab my book bag and leave Mom and Dad talking about waves. As I'm getting into my car, an old gray Fiat with an empty surfboard rack on top pulls up. Going to school, young man. The man in the car, who I take to be the buyer, says through his roll-down window. Yes, sir. Good, he says. All my best surfers do. I like that. When Mom and Dad did not show for work the next morning, Allison and I realized they were gone. The police and the insurance investigators pointed out 
that the bank accounts were untouched and no valuables, personal items, nor a single piece of inventory was missing, except for whatever Dad was working on. His surfboards and parts and experiments were the only things unaccounted for. Allison kept the business going, fueled by the belief they'd be back. Later that summer, right around when Uncle Roy showed up to help her, I left. I'd only gone out east, but the east end might as well have been the ends of the earth when it came to the warehouse and my sister. Knocking on the door wakes me. Come on, time to go, Allison is calling from outside. I get up and crack the door. Morning light leaks in. I'm staying behind, sis, I say, pretending my best to sound ill. You okay? I open the door more so she can see my face, to let her know that I am. The door pushes inward. The security chain stretches taut, preventing it from opening. It's Captain Mike. That's not how you treat family, son, he bellows. Get your ass out here. Your client is waiting down at the dock. Allison maneuvers him out of the way. It's okay, I got this, she says. I'm about to say thank you when I realize she's talking to Captain Mike. Can I come in? She asks. I let her in. We sit on the edge of the bed. She takes my hand in hers, and I know she's asking me to come on the boat. I'm not leaving sight of land, I offer as an explanation. I promised myself after. I know, she says. It must be so hard for you to be back here. I'm fine, I say. The client won't go without you, she says. Why the hell not? How am I supposed to know? He just won't. Bad luck, superstition, misogyny, all the above. Tell him to fuck off. Believe me, I want it. The point of this weekend is to land his business, though. I realize how little I know of her. I know who she was when we were a family, before I left. From the few times we spoke, I remember she'd broken someone's heart. Or it had her heart broken, maybe both. Her life, as far as I know now, is keeping the business alive. And I don't think there's much else. Are you going to be okay if he doesn't sign with you? She shakes her head. No. Uncle Roy thinks I should give up. Cash out. Sell the business. Why'd you even invite him to come? I say. I wasn't sure you would. We sit in silence. Where's the client now? On the boat with Uncle Roy, waiting for us. I grab my clothes, take them into the bathroom to get dressed. The sensation of being pulled sideways and the waves comes over me while pulling my shirt over my head. I stumble into the shower curtain. You okay in there? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm coming. Just give me 15 minutes to get coffee. Maybe you're not a pussy after all, Captain Mike grumbles under his breath as I leave the room. Does your boat hold water? I ask in reply. What the fuck kind of question is that? He says to Allison. Where is he going? To get coffee, she says. I head for the diner Nina and I used to go to on Main Street, next to Lisa's bait shop. Most of the fishing boats are already out. There's no break and the waves are free of surfers. I turn onto the street and join the early riser tourists, walking leisurely from storefront to storefront. The only vehicle traffic 
is the knife grinder truck crawling along, announcing its presence with a song on its old-fashioned bells. The truck gives a gentle honk as it passes the hardware store, which I'm amazed is still open for business. I see old Harvey Levitin behind the wheel and give him a wave. He returns the wave without any expression of recognition. A young male guy is delivering to businesses that have sprung up since I was last here. The diner next to Lisa's has been replaced by a frozen yogurt shop. It doesn't sell coffee. I wonder how long it will take me to find some and make it to the dock. I look to see if a new place has opened up, and I see the woman from last night walking my way. Hello, I call. She doesn't respond. I walk over and match her pace. Hello, good morning. I'm so glad I ran into you. I went looking for you last night, right after you left. I didn't ask your... Her mouth opens into a smile, revealing a maw of jagged, triangular teeth. They are sharp and pointed and much too big. The edge of each tooth is serrated with small, barbed notches. I stop and squint, her face showing no sign of the sharp-toothed monstrosity. She continues walking. I watch her pass the bait shop, then double back and go around the side. She's not the woman from last night. Her hair is slightly shorter, and she holds herself differently. Otherwise, she looks exactly like her. An ambulance turns onto the road and speeds towards us, lights on, siren silent. It gives a brief chirp. The Taurus move the minimum distance to give it space. The mailman crosses the street to my side after it passes. I walk to him and ask, what was that all about? Someone was killed, he says. What? Here? Late last night. Beach is full of cops. What happened? Who knows? We'll know when they tell us, right? We watch it turn left towards the beaches and docks and the path I came upon last night. I want to follow the ambulance. I want to follow the woman. There is no time for either. The captain's 40-foot convertible, the Lady Luck, is the only fishing boat remaining at the dock. An American flag attached to one of the antenna on the cabin tower flaps in the breeze. Allison, Uncle Roy, and the client are on deck watching me approach. I can see Captain Mike inside the open cabin, fiddling with the gear and switches on the console. I step off the dock onto the boat's weathered rail then onto the cushion of one of the built-in seat benches, then the deck. Hey, coffee boy, the client says. What happened? No coffee? His playfulness is grating. He's so chipper, I wonder if he's still drunk. Uncle Roy puffs on a cigar, watching for my response. Is he wanting everything to fail? Who needs coffee when you've got eels, Captain Mike says, saving me from having to speak. He exits the cabin, hauling a white five-gallon bucket in each hand. Ready to land some stripers? Don't let anyone tell you they like squid. This is my 41st summer doing this, and I know the bass love this eel. The edge is absent from the captain's voice when he directs us to help by untying the ropes holding the boat to the dock. I think he might actually be trying to be pleasant. Hold on to your hats, he says. It's a fine day for fishing. 
I hope it is. The Lady Luck leaves the inlet and speeds into the Atlantic. I'm not happy when the last glimpse of Long Island disappears from view. The steel gray ocean water is mercifully calm. The sky is clear. The sun is warm. I imagine it is a fine day for fishing. Captain Mike has classic rock playing on the radio. We can hear him singing along over the sound of the engines and gulls hitching a ride in our area wake. He spots something on the fish finder and stops the boat. He secures our rods and metal holders attached to the rail and helps us bait them. We're told we're over a school of striped bass. Within minutes, I watch Allison land the first fish. Then every few minutes, someone is pulling a two or three footer from the water. Captain Mike brings two coolers from the cabin to the deck. One is for storing the fish. The other is full of iced beers. Uncle Roy and the client each crack open a can. Allison waves her handheld video recorder in front of them, asking what they've caught. They raise their beers proudly and hand one to me and the captain. Captain Mike declines because he's driving the boat and is on duty. I make a show of drinking one with them, though hundred beers aren't going to help me feel any better. Captain Mike steps in front of the camera. I was driving the boat that pulled the world record 70-pounder out of the sound. There are 70-pounders out there. Who wants a world record? We boat farther and farther out, following schools on the boat's fish-finding sonar. The client tells us stories of how his family brought him fishing when he was young, and he doesn't seem like that much of a dick. Uncle Roy joins in by telling stories of how much Mom and Dad loved to surf, fish, and finally pulls his weight by working in how they were such geniuses in business. After we fish the next school, Captain Mike adds heavier rods and reinforced line into the holders. Ready for more or ready for lunch, he asks. We're drinking our lunch, the client says. They are such children. I suggest you put some grub in your stomach as there's no yakking on Lady Luck, Captain Mike says. He breaks out the sandwiches he's packed. We sit on the deck benches eating his deli meat sandwiches wrapped in wax paper and foil and throwing bait to the gulls who grab it in the air. The boat rocks in the gentle swell. Allison seems carefree. For a second, I almost forget how unhappy I am to be here. Something strong is pulling on the client's line. His rod has bent into a shepherd hook. Captain Mike scrambles from the cabin. Pull her in! Pull her in! He gloats. I'm trying, the client says. His reel is spinning. Okay, give it some, give it some. Let her take it. Wait for her to stop. About half of the line goes out. Now crank, Captain Mike barks. Want me to take a turn? Captain Mike and Uncle Roy and the client take turns giving line and pulling in. The client insists Allison take a turn. She passes me the camera. I get a shot of Uncle Roy against the rail trying to spot the fish. About 50 yards out, something jumps from the two-foot waves. A shark. The unmistakable dorsal remains above the water for an instant before disappearing. Captain Mike yells a mix of hell yes and indiscernible hoots before he switches to English. That's a ten-footer out there, he hollers. At least. He instructs the client to take over the rod and reel from Allison. You want this fish? He says to the client. Yes, the client says. Then dig in. This is going to take a while. You want this fish? 
he yells to Allison and Uncle Roy in turn. Then put down that camera and get ready to fight, he yells. Now we're fishing. The damn guy is actually trying to give Allison her money's worth. The client yells a pathetic imitation of Captain Roy's hooting. Now we're fishing, I whisper. They've wrangled the tired shark up against the side of the boat. Each section of rail is five feet long, so we know the fish is over ten feet. The shark is sleek and streamlined. The silver skin of its pointy head has a blue sheen from the sun and sky. Keep your hands away from its mouth, Captain Mike says. He produces two sticks that look like broom handles tipped with a sharp metal barb. He drives one hook into the side of the shark and instructs the client to hold it. He sinks the other in the fish a few feet away and puts Uncle Roy on it. Hold it there. Just a few more seconds. He lifts the cushion top of one of the built-in seats and retrieves a short-barreled shotgun. The shark slaps its tail, sending up a spray of ocean water. I taste the salt on my lips. He pushes the barrel down, drops in two slugs, and pumps the barrel back, chambering the first shot. Then he places the gun about a foot behind the shark's black eye and tries to hold it steady. The gulls on the tower take to the air in a noisy cloud when he fires. My shoes are soaked with blood. All of our shoes are stained dark red. If Nina could see me now, I would tell her I would do anything for Allison, just like I tried to do anything for her. <clears throat> when we reach the mouth of the inlet, we can see the small crowd of people from the newspaper and fishing rags waiting at the dock. A crew of two men and a crane-necked hoist help Captain Mike get the mako from the side of the boat onto the measuring gallows. It is almost 12 feet. The people from the papers are taking photos of the client and Captain Mike with the shark hanging behind them. I'd kiss the ground for real if everyone wasn't around. The client is on cloud nine and thanks Allison for it, so at least I didn't break my word. For nothing. The guy operating the hoist gives me the business card of his brother, who is a butcher, and the card of a friend who is a taxidermist. This town doesn't feel small as it used to. A police car pulls up into the lot. Two officers get out and walk directly to us. They ask if they can speak with Captain Mike in private and escort him away from the hubbub to the soda vending machines under the extended roof of the shack that houses the restrooms. I watch the excitement of the day vanish from his face as they speak. Then he doubles over and drops to his knees. The officers help him up. One of them tries to embrace him. He pushes the man away and tries to hide his tears as he runs to his truck. The surfer killed last night was Captain Mike's son. Someone opened him up the middle from neck to navel. The area on the beach where they found him is still an active crime scene. The client insists on taking us to the bar and grill on the dock again to celebrate the catch anyway. The place is less crowded than last night. A thing like death is not going to stop people, mostly out of towners like us, from eating and drinking on a weekend summer night. Uncle Roy and the client are drinking and smoking and holding court at the table for the seemingly endless amount of people who want to congratulate them on their catch over lobster and shrimp cocktails. 
The client is flanked by two women he brought to dinner. He says they are his cousin and her friend on summer vacation, but they are obviously two escorts from the city. Uncle Roy is in hog heaven. The bartender has named a cocktail for this occasion. He told me he did it under orders of his boss. Allison's down several of his Mako madnesses, and I don't blame her because she's the one who is really stuck in this shit show. I escape to the bar again to fetch another cocktail for her. Too bad it isn't September, the bartender says. That fish would have won the shark derby for sure. How many sharks do they land in the derby? I don't know. A lot. A real shame about Mike's son. I'm not fond of his dad, but Danny was a good guy. I hate what his stupid beach parties do for business, but when he's here, he always tips and tips proper. Way back when, he taught my kid to surf. Was he tall and blonde? Like every other surfer, right? Uh, no surprise to anyone, he was 41 and never settled down. Speaking of which, whatever happened with that young lady from last night? Oh, I never caught up with her. That's a shame. The client and Uncle Roy get up from the table, receive a few last back claps and handshakes, then depart with the two women. Allison joins me at the bar and lets out the biggest sigh. He's going to sign, she says. Thank you. I'm going to celebrate with a clove, I say. Cloves? Where'd you get them? She asks. All the surfers smoke them, I say. I'll join you. We go over to the busboy who's taking a smoke break on the beach where the neighboring dock begins. Off the record, Captain Mike is a dick, the busboy says as we smoke. Harsh to hear about his son, though. There's a memorial bonfire going on tonight. Want to walk? I ask Allison. Sure, she says. I'm going to need a week to decompress from this. We head away from the restaurant lights into the dark. Allison takes off her shoes and walks in the wet sand. Thanks for today, she says. I'm glad it worked out. He's happy as can be. This trip might become an annual thing, but I'll take that as it comes. You okay? You've been thinking about Nina all weekend. Strangely, no. Something else. Something Dad once said to me. She doesn't ask what. I don't blame her. It's been a hell of a long day. Need any help back at the warehouse? Sure, she says without hesitation. I'll need the help more than ever now. I've been thinking about sticking around. Count me in for Monday morning, then. I don't ask if she ever feels like she is sinking. She's too busy moving and keeping everything going to contemplate such a question. You ever wonder why Dad's stuff was the only stuff that went missing, I ask. I spot the bonfire up ahead. Even more people than last night are silhouetted in the glow. I still have Mom and Dad's boards, she says. They're personal ones from the house. The smell of smoke and the sound of rock and roll reach me together. Someone between us and the fire is walking our way in the wet sand. We step away from the shore to allow her to pass by easy. She changes course to keep right towards us. A woman. I recognize the elegant contour of her face. Is it the woman from last night? Or this morning? The woman's lower jaw drops. In the dim light, I discern those horrible teeth. 
much too big for her mouth. Her arms do not end in hands, but tapered triangles. I push Allison towards the road. Go, I say. She's coming for me. What the fuck? Go. She sees my fear and takes a few steps. The woman veers for Allison. I try to get between them and I trip on uneven sand. The woman continues for Allison with only a glance at me. Her skin is rough and gray and full of texture. Someone emerges from the darkness. For a second, I think I am seeing double and that there are two of the same person standing before me. The first woman tries to sidestep around the second, but the second woman matches her step. She pushes Allison's attacker, preventing her from getting around her. She is the woman I met last night. Go, get out of here, the woman from last night says to me. This is my sister. Her sister lunges for me. All I see are teeth. The two sisters step side to side. They're grappling an almost elegant dance. Allison reaches the end of the beach and disappears into the seagrass and dunes. I want her meat, the sister says. Let me know, the woman from last night says. Blood from sea for blood from land is not what we do. The sister tucks her head and throws herself at her sister. The woman from last night darts aside, and her sister thuds down on the spot where she had been standing a second ago. She reaches for her sister's legs. Her thrashing throws up sand and shells and a spray of liquid that I hope is water. I'm not certain of what I'm seeing. They are two women fighting, but their shapes are not right. Something more than the almost darkness. I am sure the woman from last night is easily evading her sister's wild swings and thrusts, and that she's speaking, almost singing as she does. With each heave and thrust and bite, the two of them wind up closer to the sea. When they reach the wet sand, the fighting has stopped, the singing has stopped, and I'm watching the two women walking into the water side by side. The receding tide pulls one of them out, leaving the other standing there, watching. I run to her. You saved me, I say. I reach my hand around her back and pull her to me to kiss her. She pushes me away with one hand. The force causes me to stagger backwards and fall. She retreats from the water and stands over me, looking down with only disdain on her beautiful face. Not here for you. I told you. I'm here for her, she says, to stop her from making a mistake. Her face is the most beautiful I have ever seen. Her sleek, pointed head, round black eyes, silver skin with the hint of deep sea blue. I understand now. What do you think you know, she says. Everything. Life. The currents. Tides. You showed me. I showed you nothing, she says. There is only one thing I want you to know. She takes my hand to her face and places my right index finger just inside her thin lips. A quarter-inch slit opens in my skin where I touch her human incisor. Always remember the sharpness of our teeth.
Something jumps from the water at the wave line. A fish? A shark? The shape is larger than I have ever seen in the shallows. She moves her face close to mine. A raised notch pushes through the skin between her eyes. I try to look away. A single, spiny antenna unfurls from the center of her forehead. The spine ends in a pleasing shape, a fascinating shape, the shape of something to eat, a source of soft, gentle light in the darkness I cannot look away from. I see water and waves. There are surfboards in the waves. V-shaped gills open in a long, elegant neck. The mob carries a shapeless, bloody carcass from the pier to the beach. Nina's face, happy and unblemished, dissolves into soft yellow light, then all fades to darkness. I wake up on the beach in the middle of the night, sometime later. Allison finds me and helps me back to my hotel. I'm overcome with an aching emptiness. I don't know what from. There is only the terrible yearning, so terrible, but I don't know what for. Monday morning, I show up at the warehouse as I promised. I get myself an apartment out east. On weekends, I return to the town and watch waves like Nina and I used to. The night wind blows a gust of clean ocean air into the dock's aroma of fried food, cigarette smoke, and miasma of tables full of people. The glow from the light strings hanging above the bar flashes on and off the face of the young woman sitting next to me. Here for the shark derby? I ask. Yeah, my husband's going to get a record-breaking mako this time. How? I just know it. Her husband sees us talking and comes over from a nearby table. I was just telling him you're going to win the shark derby, honey. You a fisherman, he asks. Kind of, I say. I try. What's your secret? You can't ask that, his wife says. A magician never tells his secrets. He's got the right lures, though. I know that for sure. She plants a kiss on him and runs her hands along his back. It's all in the chum, he says. Everyone knows the real way to chum for sharks is to cut yourself from nape to navel and let your guts spill out, I say. They look at me like they expect me to laugh, or at least smile. I don't. That's the end. Wow, that was a... That was a great, great story, Daniel. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed reading it. That was uh, the first time reading it for an audience, an audience of one, soon to be an audience of ink heist uh, um, people. Yeah, I think people really love it. It was very, very vivid. And I love, you know, again, big setting person. So I love the setting of it, you know, being near the ocean and stuff like that and Kind of some of too some of the scenes, you know, kind of like how we talked about how there's like all kinds of different aspects going on with it. Like there is a particular scene when people hear it. I think like it took me by surprise while I was listening to it. Oh, which which scene? Which scene was uh, that? Ah, 
when he found her in the tub with uh oh yeah the dryer and the yeah I was I didn't I didn't expect that but yeah I I love the story and uh yeah anytime and uh I was telling Shane about it and I don't think he's familiar with this story so I know he's excited to listen to it as well oh yeah I'm so glad I'm so uh yeah, I'm so I'm really glad for this opportunity to read it. I mean, I like to do readings um, here in New York and wherever I get a chance. And just uh, just the reality of doing readings, um, people in person. I mean, this was a long story. That's got to be a half hour plus that I very rarely do. I get a chance to read a full story. And my kind of work is just um, uh, reading just a part of the story doesn't do it justice. You know, it's sort of. You know, reading a part of the story would be cool, but I think I think for reading weird fiction or strange tales or some literary stuff, it's like there's something about reading uh, reading the story as a, as a complete unit that you can get get the um, the gist of it. I think that's a lot more necessary for this kind of work. So I'm extra appreciative for this opportunity. I really appreciate it, Rich. Yeah, anytime, Daniel, and thank you very much for sharing that with us. And uh, it was a, I had a great time talking with you today, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on the show soon. I absolutely will. I would not want to face the wrath of Shane, so reasons <laughs> for me to come back. And I absolutely hope to see you again soon, guys. All the best uh, to you and to Shane and to Inkhuis. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Daniel, and have a great night. Thank you so much. Bye.